Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Well, hello there, everybody. Welcome to yet another edition of Rico Bronia. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for subscribing. If you haven't, subscribe anywhere. You download your podcast. Rico Bronia, at least twice a week talking about the Mets. Two things we will discuss today on the Rico. One, a heavy mailbag day. A heavy mailbag day. We will listen to you and your opinions on the New York Mets, and I'll obviously react to them. And also we'll go through this Hall of Fame ballot and how a lot of these candidates have been Mets, have killed the Mets, or their relation to the Mets. Obviously, later this week, they're going to announce who gets in the Baseball Hall of Fame, the 2024 edition of the Hall of Fame. So we'll go through that a little bit later on. I'm also very excited about something, and so is Pete Hoffman. We have discussed starting a series here on Rico Bronia called The Killers. And I don't mean the band, where we meet some of the great Met killers in the history of the franchise. We don't do a lot of guests on the Rico Bronia, but why not bring on the enemy? Why not talk to the enemy? And we will be debuting the Killers series coming up in the next two weeks. Who is the first kind of entry? Who is the first person that's going to join Rico Bronia? As a killer, I'll just give you a hint, all right? Let me give you one little hint. You ready? Here's the hint. One moment. That's my hint. One moment, all right? So think upon um, upon yourselves, and in the next few weeks, we will go one-on-one or two-on-one with this Met killer when he joins us on Rico Bronia. But let's start off by talking to you in that mailbag, the B at gmail.com. The Rico B at gmail.com. Jimmy Lone's going to lead things off. I want to ask you guys if you think an offensive year from Francisco Alvarez would be acceptable if it was like Gary Sanchez of 2016 and 2017. Sanchez's stats that year 278, 
33 home runs, 90 RBIs. That was in 2017. It also seems Fangraphs is projecting Mark Vientos to have a big power year with 16 home runs and 350 plate appearances. I actually wrote about this on Fansided's Rising Apple. There you go. Check it out. Jimmy's writing for Fansided's Rising Apple. He wanted to get our take on that as well. And also, he says, Evan, my red-haired Mets, Jets, and Islanders fan, oh, the pain, bro, what do you think of Patrick Waugh replacing Lane Lambert? <laughs> I'm excited, though I never root for someone to lose their job. I think this year is on Lou Lamarillo. What do you think? I, let me just say this real quick. I know we're not doing um, the random New York Islander podcast. This is not Pierre Turgeon. But I will say this. When I saw that Lane Lambert was fired, there was this, I don't want to say excitement, but there was this sigh of relief because clearly the Islanders needed to make a change. So the first reaction is, okay, good. Lou pulled the trigger he needed to. But then the second reaction was, Patrick, what? Because I know he coached in Colorado a few years ago. But when you think of Patrick Waugh, you think of greatest goaltender in the history of the sport. And now, who, who, by the way, doesn't have an affiliation with the Islanders. And now, all of a sudden, he's the head coach. I was trying to think of, like, what would be the Met comparison? And I'd say, what, like Barry Bonds being named manager? <laughs> Something of that regard. Greg Maddox all of a sudden gets named manager. But they clearly needed to change. As far as Alvarez is concerned, I think we would all agree, Pete, if Francisco Alvarez goes 33-90, and 90, and dare I say hits 278, which means his OPS would easily be over 800, uh, I'd be dancing in the streets. I think that would be an incredibly productive year from Alvarez in his second season in the major leagues, and I would sign for that right now. Oh, no question about it. I mean, that that to me is – that if the Mets somehow punt on getting a DH, Francisco Alvarez filled that void. You know what I mean? Like that that to me is exactly what we're looking for behind Pete Alonzo. Oh, no doubt. I mean, think about the slugging the Mets have right now. So Pete Alonzo a year ago and what many consider a down year because of his average hit 46 home runs. Francisco Lindor in a very solid year hit 31 home runs. And outside of that, the Mets don't have reliable sluggers like Brandon Nimmo actually at 24 home runs, which is high for him. Who knows what Starling Marte gives, depending on how much time he plays. And Vientos, again, we'll see. I mean, we can project whatever we want on fan graphs. How much playing time does he get? How productive is he going to be? Uh, is he going to actually get 350 plate appearances and at 16 home runs? I don't know. I mean, it's not – he's not someone I would write down and feel reliable about because we don't know how much he's going to play. He's going to have to earn his playing time. Alvarez last year at 25 home runs. But I think we'd all agree it was a very uneven season for him. He would have these patches of time in which he was lights out, and we were all ecstatic about what we were watching. And a lot of his home runs were clutch, too. And then there would be periods of time where he would just – he would disappear months at a time. So I think consistency is also the really important thing we need to see out of Francisco Alvarez. He had a very inconsistent season. And I think, you know, when you're talking about a guy in his first season – and a guy who's 21 years old, you're okay with it. You almost understand it. But obviously now in year two, they're going to rely on him a lot more. And to Pete's point, if he's having a productive season like that, if he is one of their most reliable sluggers, I think that the DH conversation changes a little bit because now all of a sudden when he sits on those days where he needs rest, where he needs to rest the knees, you're going to want his bat in the lineup. You're going to want him to hit. 
And that's going to become a big factor. I think early in the season, unless Alvarez is just tearing the cover off the ball, when they give him off days, those Sunday after night games, even though they don't play that many Saturday night games early, but you know what I mean, day game after night game, when they sit him, they're going to want to give him a full day off to kind of rest his body and not wear him out. But if we're sitting here in the middle of June and he is their most reliable slugger, I think if you're Carlos Mendoza, you're going to have to find a way to play him every single day. And that means when he doesn't catch, he's the DH, and that obviously changes that DH alignment. Noah Gittle writes, I just listened to your take on the David Stearns press conference, and I've got to disagree with your fundamental takeaway. Stearns said he expects the Mets to be competing for a playoff spot. To my ears, that's not the same thing as being a playoff team, which seems to be how you interpreted it. I did, by the way. And I listened to it again, and I still interpret it that way. All Stearns is really saying is he expects the Mets to be in a playoff race, likely for the final wild card spot in September. It's just a different way of saying they'll be playing meaningful games, as Sandy Alderson used to say. I appreciate that you had an optimistic reading of it, but I think we have to be clear about what he actually said. I don't even think my interpretation is optimistic. It's more, I think he's telling us this is our expectation for this season. We expect to be a playoff team. If we're not a playoff team, this season is a disappointment. And I think what we need to get used to is that we're in a new world when it comes to the Major League Baseball playoffs. You know, growing up, and not even growing up, but five years ago, it, making the playoffs, you'd have to be a really good team for the most part. Obviously, you could find your exceptions. The Cardinals in 06, winning a bad division by only winning 82, 83 games. Even the Yankees in 2000 only won 87 games. So sure, there have always been exceptions. Even the Mets in 1973, if you want to go back further, like, yes, there are exceptions to being really good to make the playoffs, but a select few make it. And with this new format that we have, where now we have three wildcard teams, it feels different. And so I think the expectation of being a playoff team, I don't want to say it's along the same lines as the NBA and the NHL, because I don't know if it's necessarily gotten there, but we're not that far off. I mean, when you really think about it, we're looking at six playoff teams. You know, the NHL is looking at eight playoff teams. We're not that far away from it. So I think when our expectation or the general manager or the team president's expectation is playoff spot, it's different than seven years ago where 90 wins would have to be that number. If I had to sit here right now in late January and say, okay, what's the number? And I know this number may change throughout the season. We'll go back and forth about it. But what's the number that's going to take making the playoffs? I think that number is about 85. Like that's, I, I think at the beginning of every season, I'll probably look at it that way. 85. Now, will there be years in which 81 may get you in? Yeah. I mean, look through the history of the last 10 years. And I've done this because I'm that big of a geek of what the playoff format would look like if it existed five years ago. And I found Pete on numerous occasions under 500 teams making the playoffs as a wildcard team which we have never seen in the history of baseball in a normal 162-game season, that's on the table. So it's possible we're going to run into a season in which an 80 and 82 team makes the playoffs, and vice versa, we will run into a season where that number, it may need 90 to make the postseason. But I think in general, 85 is the number, and 85 is not that big of a number, even when your expectations are low. Well, listen, I think the Mets right now over-under is 80 and a half. Uh, for the season. So if you're telling me 80 wins gets into the playoffs or could potentially be there, let's go this year. Let's let's try it this year. <laughs> let's go, Mets. Yes. 80 wins in the playoffs. <laughs> so 
I think the year I came up with was 2014, the year before the Mets obviously got to the World Series. That was a year in which the Mets would have missed the playoffs by like a game or two in 2014, where I think the last playoff spot was an 80 or 81 win season, and the Mets won in the high 70s that year. So we're going to see it. Like I'll tell you that right now. We are going to see a year in which an under 500 team makes the playoffs. Raymond Pierce agrees with Noah. Basically, my listening comprehension sucks, is what they're trying to say. Raymond writes, Evan, he said the Mets would compete for a playoff spot, which is not the same as saying the Mets will make the playoffs. Your inability to listen well is explained when one studies history. It's called the philosophical concept of corresponding truths, (laughs) where humans see what they expect to see, Hear what they expect or wish to hear and not what is real or true. Truth and reality are abstract concepts and therefore cannot be known by humans, albeit facts can be known and are reflective of truth itself. I like Raymond. He's bringing the facts right now. If the Mets finish five games behind the last wildcard spot, it may be said they competed for a wildcard spot. I hope you're able to understand this. I still I still don't think I heard what you guys heard. I still think I heard, not because I wanted to hear it, I still think I heard David Stern say, our expectation is to make the postseason. Well, I'll tell you what I didn't hear. He didn't say, we expect to be bottom feeders. We're going to be last place. Like, I know he's never going to say that anyway, but that those words were, we're going to try to compete all season long. Like, he could have spun it a lot of different ways. So the fact that he's putting playoffs out there, the – the tone of his voice, you got to take that for what it is. I, I know that we as negative Mets fans always think the worst and always want to read into things. This one you don't have to. Yeah, and i just tell you my expectation, not even finishing this offseason yet because I still want them to add a DH. I still think they need to add a bullpen arm or two. So this offseason isn't over, but it doesn't even matter. And this goes back to something I was saying a few minutes ago about the new world we live in with the playoffs. My expectation is to make the postseason. If the Mets are not a playoff team this year, I'm not going to spin it as some kind of positive. Like, it will be a massive disappointment. Are there ways this season can feel good? Are there ways where we could have high expectations going into 25 while also missing the playoffs? Yeah, I'll admit that. Like, there could be a scenario where Luis Angel Acuna comes up, where Drew Gilbert comes up, where... Mike Vassell looks really good, where Christian Scott looks really good, and the youngins come up and make an impact, but they fall short. So two things can be true at the same time. I would still be massively disappointed they didn't make the playoffs, but I could also open my eyes and say, you know what, I feel good about next year. And funny, I brought up 2014 before. That's how I felt at the end of 2014. I'll never forget a night in September. I was dating my now wife. And I dragged her to a September game on a rainy night in 2014 where the games were meaningless. And I was explaining, yeah, we suck. We're not going anywhere. And I said to her, I'm not an optimistic guy, but this team is about to come. This team is about to become really good. And she said, well, how do you, like, what's that based on? And I said, you can feel it. You can feel it with the youth of this team. You can feel it with Jacob DeGrom's emergence as a rookie of the year. You can feel it with Matt Harvey coming back from Tommy John. You could feel it with, we've got this big pitching prospect named Noah Syndergaard. And so I was optimistic at the end of 2014. 
Now, that didn't make me happy at the end of 2014 because I was still disappointed they were a sub-500 team. And I think 2024 is different in terms of payroll and the hope that we had from two years ago, which also raises those expectations. But I remember at the end of that season feeling good. Now, I certainly didn't think they'd be in the World Series the following year. I wasn't that optimistic, but I was optimistic about where the franchise was going, the youth we were witnessing, and my hope for 2015. And clearly it wasn't unfounded because look where they went. So, yeah, I can see at the end of this season being disappointed in the overall results, but having this sense of confidence of, wow, I feel good where this is about to go. And that's even before our dreams of Steve Cohen signing big free agents. You know what I mean? So so I think that's certainly on the table. So I have a, a, a mailbag question now that I just came up with. Because you painted a... So it's a Pete Hoffman mailbag? Is this yeah. from Pete the, the, of WFAN? Yeah, yeah. The Hoff.com. All right. Uh, all right. So it it just popped up because you made a very compelling you know point right here where we can feel excited. We can feel excitement about this team. All the young kids being called up. But say, and we kind of had this conversation back, I think, early on. If this team is, quote-unquote, like David starts competing for a playoff spot and the and the playoffs come around or the, um, the trade deadline comes around and we s- choose to stay pat and just call up the young kids rather than make an impact trade, is that going to be satisfying to you? Because we're at a crossroads almost. Like, I could see and envision the young kids making that major step in the near future too. But I also really want to always win every year. Yeah, I think uh, there's so many factors to that question. Number one, how good are we? Are we just in on the per, like the peripheral of a pennant race? Are we two games under 500, but a game out of a wild card spot? Are we legitimately really good? What are the flaws of this team? What do we need? Who's available at the trade deadline? Like, there's so many things that would kind of alter how I would feel about it. Like, if this team is a game out of first place and we are a legitimate playoff team and clearly aching for one more arm in the rotation, I would probably be banging the drum. Hey, we're close. Let's go for it. Yeah, the plan was for the future, but wow, this team's a lot better than any of us could have thought and we're close. Let's go for it. And then obviously depends which starting pitchers are available, you know. Is Cleveland trading Shane Bieber? What kind of year is Shane Bieber having? So there's a lot of factors that could kind of dictate that. So it's it's a big hypothetical. But I can definitely see scenarios where I'm banging the drum, let's go for it. But I can also see scenarios where I'm like, you know what? Let's not get nuts here. Let's not do something completely stupid. But hopefully we have to answer that question. Hopefully we're not answering the questions in July about selling. <laughs> I don't want that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. 
Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. On the same line, Anthony writes, I want to get your thoughts on when the Mets truly will be ready to go for it. We see this year, isn't it? And everyone says next year is the year, but it's hard to see how we'll be ready to compete next year either. With the rotation pieces we have in place, we'll be back in the market trying to build the whole rotation again. Hopefully some kids pan out in the minors, but if they don't, we have that many fewer assets to help acquire starting pitching. Seems there's a lot of risk in not locking up a Montgomery or anyone under control beyond the year. What do you think? Well, I, I agree with you, and a part of why I wanted the Mets to pursue a long-term option once they failed Yamamoto, like a Jordan Montgomery, is exactly what you're laying out. The Mets are likely to go into next offseason with many rotation questions. It is unrealistic to think that numerous kids are going to be so good this year upon being called up that we're going to feel comfortable about three rotation spots. That's, that's a real optimistic view that Vassal or Scott, or whomever you want to name, comes up and not only comes up, but performs well enough in a big enough sample size that we're all good saying, hey, they have a rotation spot. Because outside of that, the only guy firmly under control for 2025 is Kodai Senga. So you're right. And this is a concern I've, I've mentioned throughout this offseason. That next year, going into the offseason, besides keeping Pete Alonso, which I think is the scenario we're looking at, uh, unfortunately, this beard isn't going anywhere. I think Pete is going to have to go into free agency and we'll deal with a, a Brandon Nimmo, Aaron Judge type situation. Hopefully not a Zach Wheeler type situation. But besides keeping Alonzo and a pursuit of Juan Soto that we all want, starting pitching under like any circumstances is going to have to be a major priority because they don't have a lot of guys locked up. Yeah, the dream scenario is that the Mets get numerous, not just one, but numerous young pitchers to come up before the end of the year and pitch so well. That we're feeling, hey, that's a spot that's locked up. We used 14 as a comparison, and he wasn't even a huge prospect at the time. So let's use the DeGrom comparison. Jacob DeGrom comes up in late May of 2014, not even as a prospect. Pitches so damn well, wins rookie of the year, that of course going into 2015, he was in the rotation to the point where I wanted him to be the opening day starter. So if the Mets could get that, that would be nice, but even that would still leave rotation spots open. So when is the realistic time to win? I still think it can be next year, depending on how aggressive Steve Cohen and David Stearns want to be. You know, one of the things we keep telling ourselves this offseason for an offseason that has not featured the big ticket items has been wait till next year. Kind of the old Brooklyn Dodger mantra. Wait till next year. Are we so sure that the Mets next year are going to go nuts? Because they're going to have to go nuts to meet the expectations of a lot of Mets fans. Number one, Pete Alonso. He is a free agent. To even keep him, they're going to have to spend a lot of money. Juan Soto, who I think we've all been envisioning long before he was traded to the New York Yankees as this great option to add to the middle of this lineup with Lindor and Nimmo and potentially Alonso. And then the rotation questions we just brought up. Is that what they're going to do? And I think right now, a year out, that's the expectation, but I don't know. 
I have to admit, I wish I could be cocky and tell you, yeah, we're going to go buy everybody, but I don't really know. David Ramos writes, you can't build a consistent winner by giving up draft picks. Even the Dodgers don't do that. I'd give up the draft pick for Juan Soto next year, but you were talking about doing a two-year deal and signing Blake Snell. You must keep the draft picks. Of course, there are exceptions like Juan Soto, but even Blake Snell on a three-year deal is a bad move for the Mets. So David is in relation to the fact that while I've been anti-Blake Snell and anti-pursuing Blake Snell, last week we were talking about the possibility, which I think is remote, that Blake Snell would have to settle for some kind of short-term deal. And we were talking hypothetically about a big money three-year deal where Snell has an opt-out after year one, can get back in a free agency. Would I pursue that? And I said, yeah, on a contract like that, I'd be more interested. To the point where Pete Hoffman, who I, I blame for this, decides to label a part of our Rico Bronya podcast, Evan does a 180 on Blake Snell. I didn't do a 180 on Blake Snell. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. No, I did. How is that a you put a, it's you a different put, you, contract? Well, you put a hypothetical out there because you were so – it's very simple. You were very much, I don't want him, and then you thought of an idea of how we could potentially bring him in, and that kind of changed your opinion. 180. Because I don't think that that option is realistic. I don't think it when we talked about it. I haven't thought about well, it this offseason. Oh, wait. Why, why is it unrealistic? Because what's today's day? January 21st? Uh, every day that – we're, how far are we away from pitchers and catchers? About four and a half weeks. Ooh, I mean, every day. it's We're not, well, it's still early in the offseason. Every day is, wow, we're almost at pitchers and catchers. He's going to have to Here's move. why. No, no, you're right. But here's why I still think it's unrealistic. I think there's a lot of teams that need or want Blake Snell a lot more than the New York Mets. I think the Blue Jays. I think the Yankees. I think the Angels, even though where the hell are they going? And I think that if his market ever came down, if Scott Boris ever said, ah, you know what, nine years, 350, that's too much, or whatever the hell he's asking for. I think that those teams would still offer him a longer-term contract, even if it's a little bit less money than what Scott's asking for, or a little bit less years than what Scott's asking for. I don't think it would ever come down to the point where he's accepting a short-term deal. The guy's coming off a Cy Young. Like, it's not as if he's coming off a bad year where he can reshape the market. So I didn't flip-flop. I'm responding to the different way he could be acquired. But let me answer uh, his question, uh, David's question, because it's a good one, which is, hey, I'm not even willing to give up the draft pick compensation. I go back and forth about this because I, I understand the value of keeping your draft picks and not handing them away when you sign a free agent. While I'm not the biggest Blake Snell fan, and I understand what compensatory picks can turn into. You know, in our history, losing Mike Hampton turned into David Wright. There's a lot of value in that, and I understand that. But if I can get a guy who just won a Cy Young, and I have him on such a risk-free contract for a couple of years, I would lean towards being willing to give up the pick. I get why long-term you want to hold on to them, but I don't know. In this unrealistic world where I'm getting him, on a short-term deal. It's not easy, but I admit I probably would pull the trigger on it. But that is an aspect we didn't bring up last week, so I'm glad that David brought it up in the email that he does have draft pick attachment to him. Ronner writes, Evan, my nine-year-old who proclaims to be the biggest Met fan in the state of Washington wanted me to send you a question. Oh, I like this. We listen to the pod on the way to and from school and his baseball practices. You know what that means? 
means we should curse less. We never curse at all. We got a nine-year-old listening. It's a family podcast. We can't be dirty. Not that we're dirty. It's usually Pete that curses, right? Yeah, curse. No, 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 no. You you, you lay out some F-bombs sometimes when you're really frustrated. But I'll take the blame for most others. <laughs> well, I do want to apologize uh, to Rana and her son because I apologize. We don't want to teach you to curse. Cursing is wrong. Unless... Unless the Mets really take you off, then it's okay. Then it's okay. Yeah. Well, listen, it's, honestly, it's going to grow him for a few, It's going to mold him for a few years when you're more of like a teenager and you're watching games and you really understand the frustration that the Mets give you on a daily basis. That's true. What's so innocent about this nine-year-old is the quote question starts by saying, Rico, what do you think? <laughs> I love that. We're Rico. Me, uh, Pete Nevin or Rico. Rico. What do you think we would have to give up to get Bryce Miller or George Kirby? Do you think the Mariners would trade either? Unfortunately, the answer is no. <laughs> the answer is no. I don't even know what we'd have to give up because I don't think the Mariners would be interested in any way. They've got themselves a really good young rotation. It's a part of why, you know, and we'll do some baseball predictions right before the start of the year. One of the teams that I look at and can see that huge year out of, especially even though they're in a very difficult division, is Seattle. They've got really good young pitching. But thank you very much, Hugh, for the question. P.S. I'm going to all three games of Mets Mariners when they're here, so I'm hoping Pete Alonso is still with us and not traded. He's my favorite player. Me too. Oh, so is you? He, me too. Is he a Mariners fan or a Mets fan? No, a Mets fan, but living in the state of Washington. Biggest Mets fan in the state of Washington. Got it. That's right. We got Met fans all over the place. I love baby. it. Thank you very much for emailing the Rico B at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening in the great state of Washington. Evan and Pete, this is from Jeff Cohen. I've been advocating for a Pete Alonzo contract extension. Probably not going to happen with Scott Morris as his agent. We all know Pete has the ability to set the Mets home run record, but his off the field endeavors and being homegrown too is valuable and too valuable to let him go to free agency. The last year or so, the Cubs have been rumored to have interest in Pete. But what if the Yankees come a-calling? The Mets kept away from the Aaron Judge free agency out of deference to the Steinbrenners. I doubt the Yankees will reciprocate that gesture. The thought of us Mets fans seeing Pete in the Yankee uniform is too much to bear. Your thoughts? I'm not worried about the Yankees. I'm really not. The Yankees are a big market team. The Yankees are willing to spend. I have a tough time believing that the Yankees next offseason, in an offseason where Juan Soto's a free agent, right, so they have to deal with him, in an offseason where Glaber Torres is a free agent, and say what you want about Glaber, he's not easy to replace when you look at your other options to play second base. And the fact that Cashman over the last few years has seemed to kind of realize or move back to, hey, we need left-handed power on this team, and we can't go too right-handed, I don't think they're going to be big players for Pete Alonso. I don't, especially when they've got Giancarlo Stanton signed long-term, another right-handed slugger, the possibility Pete may eventually have to DH a lot more. And then the first thing I said, which is the priority of keeping Juan Soto, who I think is going to cost you $600 million. If they lose Juan Soto to the Mets, could I see the Yankees saying, okay, our pivot is Pete Alonso? Maybe. But it's not my biggest fear. I'd be very, very surprised if we're sitting here a year from now and Pete Alonso's a New York Yankee. Is it possible he's a Cub? Yes, that is 
an absolute threat. It makes a lot of sense. They've got a lot of money. They've been linked to him before in terms of trying to trade for him. Uh, but the Yankee thing doesn't worry me as much. It annoys me that he's going to get the free agency. I think back to other lifetime Met possibilities and how the Mets handled it. David Wright, and I brought this up on the recall. I know I brought this up on Evident Tiki, but this is the question I like to ask my fellow Met fans about signing Pete and anyone who's against a contract that they deem too expensive or too many years or too risky. The Mets signed David Wright to a contract extension one year before free agency. So this would have been the equivalent of Pete Alonso right now. And they signed him to that mega contract, nine years, a buck, 50, whatever it was, big time contract at the time. And I think we'd all agree it was a disaster. He was not healthy after signing that contract. He played a decent amount in 2014, missed a lot of 2015, though he did play when it mattered, missed a lot of 16, and then his career was basically over. And then had that cameo at the end of his career. But ask yourself this. Do you regret giving David Wright that extension? Are there Met fans out there who say, boy, that was a big mistake? Now, a couple of things to keep in mind. Different ownership now. So Cohen wouldn't be afraid of a contract failing, I would think. And number two, the Wilpons basically didn't even pay for the contract because insurance covered, I think, like 70% of it. But knowing what we know now, knowing that it failed, knowing that, yeah, he gave us a couple of moments, specifically 2015, but certainly not worth all that money in all those years, do you regret it? Because my answer is no. My answer is, I'm just glad David Wright didn't play for another team. And as long as it doesn't hinder you long-term, and that's really relying on the owner, not using one bad contract to say, well, I can't do anything now because I'm stuck with this bad contract, and I don't think Steve Cohen is that kind of owner, then what are you afraid of? And that's my question to my fellow Met fan. Like, we could sit here all day, and we've done pods on it, breaking down his stats and breaking down projections for the next few years, and you can make every kind of analytical baseball argument on why he isn't worth this amount of money. You can use Matt Olson's contract, which I don't think is fair because he signed it years before free agency, so of course it was smaller than what it should have been. So I don't like that as a frame of reference, even though it's continued to be used as a frame of reference. But we can make all these baseball arguments for why you can't pay him more than $190 million. But my counter to all of that is, why risk him going somewhere else? And if you have an owner that's willing to not let that contract hinder him, why not just make sure he's not on another team? This is more of an emotional argument than a baseball argument. But ask yourself about David Wright. For all the analytical fans who are Met fans listening to the Rico right now, no one could deny the David Wright contract failed. But what if he got to free agency and signed with the Phillies and the same thing happened? Or he signed with the Yankees, which could have been a possibility. Isn't it better that he was a Met even if it failed? So I have two things here, and I'm going to lead with Jeff. I love you, um, because as the, Jeff Cohen was the guy who just emailed, if I'm correct. Um, you, yes, yes. I would be so pissed if Pete, if Pete Alonzo played for the Yankees. That would burn me more than anything else, because I, that means to me that the Mets didn't do enough to keep Pete Alonzo here, and they're okay with 
pass the buck to somebody else. It doesn't make a difference what team he goes to, but the Yankees would burn me more because we didn't go all in for Aaron Judge. We didn't try for Aaron Judge. There's guys that we've lost to the Yankees. I mean, not many, but the fact is it's it's been on the table that we should be getting the best players or should be offering at least something to the best players, and Judge we completely passed on. So if it rolls reversed and the Yankees went in and got Pete Alonso from us, and we kind of, again, pass it like, yeah, whatever, we don't want him. It's going to piss me off a lot. I don't care what you say. I know that maybe it's unrealistic, but if it did happen, I would, I'd call Steve Cohen a fraud. I, re- I really would. Well, that, for, that's for, me would I'm not defending. But I, I, nothing I said defended that happening. It was more, it's not going to happen. I'm not worried about it because I just, I don't see it happening. Well, first of all, they need a first baseman after this year. Rizzo's gone. Well, they, they, they're not they're not going to put LeMahieu there. So you're right, but they could, they do need a first baseman at Pete Alonso. It's pretty freaking good hitting 45. Well, but but one other thing, one other thing to your point, I, and I didn't mention this, but you kind of alluded to it. I think another reason why it wouldn't happen in my mind is even if the Yankees did pursue him, even if I'm wrong about them not pursuing him, I don't think Steve Cohen would let that happen. I don't think he's an idiot. I think that when push comes to shove, executives in this town understand the other team in town and understand the repercussions of, let's say, losing a guy to another team or it's why they don't trade a guy to another team. Like, off off sport, I've had a few Nick fans come to me recently saying, hey, do you think the Nets would trade Mikel Bridges? Because they want him on the Knicks, and I totally get why. And my first answer is they're not trading him. But even if they did, they're not trading him to the Knicks. Like, they wouldn't let that happen because they're not idiots. They're running a business. They're not going to send their best player across town. So, similarly, if Pete Alonso got to free agency and the Mets are playing hardball and the highest bidder is the Yankees, I think the Mets would say, boy, you know what? We can't let that. That's not a good business move. <laughs> we can't let that happen. And I think eventually they would then stand up if they weren't willing to do it because it was the Cubs instead and get it done. I, I just don't think it's happening. It doesn't worry me because I don't think it's happening. If I was worried about it, I'd say I'm worried about it. Well, that's good. I, I hope that, I'm glad that you're not worried about it because I'm sweating bullets over here. But on top of that, <laughs> yes. on, top, on top of that, excuse me, did you see the top 10 list that came out for first baseman? T- top 10 first yes. baseman right yes. now. And Pete yes. Alonso, by the way, I'm happy that he's on the list because it seems like he's getting insulted a lot. Like, I really think that people just are throwing Pete Alonso away as a first baseman. He's he's nothing. It, to be on the top 10 list, we're, we're lucky that he's even on there. He's on at number six, and let's 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 be serious. Go through it. Freddie Freeman, a Hall of Famer. I'm not going to debate that. Right now, he's still one of the best hitters in the league, one of the best gloves in the league. Okay, fine. Bryce Harper played 30 freaking games last year at first base, and we're sitting and put him on this freaking list. That's ridiculous. You got Paul Goldschmidt, who had an off year. He's kind of towards the end of his career. He's sitting number three. You got Matt Olson, who had a career year. No questions at all. He's at four. By the way, you look at their OPS – their 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 um their batting average. You look at all these OPS pluses for their career. Guess what? Their numbers are freaking identical, identical. So we had a great year last year. But Pete Alonso's hit fifty plus home runs one year too. It happens. And then Yandy Diaz being five. I'm sorry, that whole list just made me feel like Pete Alonso's the best first baseman in the freaking league. I love Pete. He's not the best first baseman in the league, not right now. And two, the problem with these lists, why I don't get crazy about it, is what. First of all, it's just opinion. I mean, it's just somebody's opinion. Who the hell's opinion is it? Somebody at MLB, Brian Kenny's opinion? Because he's stuck it in the shredder, whatever the hell he calls it. 
But also, like, Yandy Diaz had a great year last year. There's no denying that. And that's the one that jumped out at me. It's the one I commented on on Twitter. He had a great year last year. And he had a better year than Pete Alonso last year. I'll totally give you that, even though he's not great defensively either. But are we doing this on one year, or are we doing this on a career? Are we doing this on reliability, or are we doing this on what have you done for me lately? A part of the appeal of Pete is that he's reliable. Is that other than getting hit by Charlie Morton, he goes out and plays every single day. Where does he rank on a list like that? I don't know. Who the hell cares? All I know is I want him to be my first baseman for the next decade. Sam writes, I don't think you and most Met fans are appreciating the job David Stearns has done thus far this offseason, filling the mess left for him by Billy Epler. As Evan mentioned many times on the Rico, the Mets had like 14 spots on the 40-man roster to fill just to complete a team. With so many expiring contracts, Epler left the Mets with four open starting pitching spots, four open relief pitching spots, three open outfield spots, two open infield spots, and at least one needed DH, with already the highest payroll in MLB. Stearns has been able to sign one professional player after another, really under the radar. Solid pickups from Joey Wendell, Zach Short, Adrian Hauser, to Tyrone Taylor, Jorge Lopez, and Austin Adams, not to mention Severino, Bader, etc. Instead of knocking him for not signing the one superstar piece, let's start giving him credit for signing 12 or 13 mid-level pieces. Sure, the Mets may not compete with the Dodgers this season, but after the shambles Epler left them in, Stearns has done a really stellar job building a team full of professionals. Curious to hear your thoughts, Sam. I have mentioned that I like some of these under-the-radar moves. I like the signing of Luis Severino. I like the trading of four Adrian Hauser and Tyrone Taylor, considering they only gave up a piece they got back in the trade for Eduardo Escobar. We'll see about Zach Short. Joey Wendell's a fine utility player as long as he's treated as such. And Austin Adams and Jorge Lopez are relievers. It is certainly possible we're sitting here in July talking about how great they've been. Those under-the-radar moves, and I've mentioned this at the beginning of uh, this offseason when they were first going down, they may turn out to be utterly brilliant. And if you're going to compete in 2025, there's going to have to be a few of these that turn out to be utterly brilliant. It's difficult now to talk about how great all of these things are when a lot of these things are banking on guys bouncing back off bad years. If they bounce back, yes, David Stearns may have drawn an A. But Luis Severino hasn't had a good year in five years, or a good year in which he's pitched fully in five years. I want to clarify. Doesn't mean I wouldn't have taken the risk on him. I love the signing. Jorge Lopez is coming off a terrible year in the bullpen that followed a really good year in the bullpen. Who the hell knows? It is the beauty of baseball, but I can't give him an A. I could say I like some of these moves, and if they work out, yeah, they'll look utterly brilliant. But I think it's not the big ticket item. It's the sure thing item. And while nobody's a sure thing necessarily in baseball, I guess more reliability in terms of the guys you pick up. Steven writes, Evan, have watched or listened listened to 150-plus Met games every season since 1972. How about that? And as a season ticket holder, managed to get to about 35 games a year. I just had my first grandson last September, and I don't feel bad about making him a Met fan. It builds character. Yankee fans are entitled losers. How about that? This email addresses two points you've made on the Rico. Point number one, a few episodes back, you lamented the lackluster Mets outfield as it now stands. Point number two, 
which you mentioned just about every show, is that with baseball, unlike the other major sports, you can always hope. Because if things break right, you never know. Which brings me back to point number one. The Mets outfield on opening day in 2000 consisted of Daryl Hamilton, Derek Bell, and Ricky Henderson. By the first game of the World Series, yeah, remember, this lackluster outfield made it to the World Series. It was Timo Perez, Jay Payton, and Benny Agbayani. Not what you'd call star-studded. That outfield is proof that point number two, anything can happen in a baseball season, can happen when you have an outfield that by most metric metrics suck. Let's hope and pray. <laughs> that is fair. That is fair. What happened in 2000? Uh, there were a lot of changes from that outfield from opening day to what ended up happening in the World Series. Timo Perez was not even a thought. Ricky Henderson got DFA'd within a month and a half because he didn't run out of ball off the wall in left field, and things changed. It's fair, but also remember, there are a lot of seasons, more times than not, where we go in with that same, you never know if things break right, and things don't break right. <laughs> so for all of the ones that will cite as see it happened in 2000, even though they did have high expectations in 2000, his point was more about the outfield. A lot of times, things don't break right. But nevertheless, there is still moves to be made. This offseason is still not completed. What's more disappointing, the fact that the Mets, you know, made the World Series with that type of outfield or that someone's favorite player growing up was Benny Agbayani because of that World Series? <laughs> Benny was a good Met, man. <laughs> I love Benny. Hawaii 5-0, let's go. I mean, I, I can never make fun of anybody for picking someone as their favorite player because this whole podcast is named Rico Bronia. And I like Rico, but, you know, I mean, Rico Bronia, Benny Agbayani, like, well, what are we talking about here? Right, let's get to this Hall of Fame ballot. There's a lot of Met feel to this Hall of Fame ballot. Todd Helton is on his sixth year of eligibility. I don't think he's – I think he's going to get in, Todd Helton. And I've kind of warmed up to Todd Helton being a Hall of Famer. You know, ripping him apart because of course field doesn't seem fair. And by the way, there are two ways to give Hall of Fame opinions, in my opinion. Number one is you look at the stats. You know, you go to baseball reference. We all can do it. You analyze the stats and you say, that's a Hall of Famer. That's not a Hall of Famer. What I like to do with this ballot, because now I'm old enough to have seen all of these guys play their entire career. If you are over the age of 30 to 35, maybe a little bit older, you've seen their entire careers. What I like to do is my first reaction. Did I think of them as a Hall of Famer? And sometimes it doesn't add up. I admit that. Sometimes I say no, and then I say, by the way, when you look at the numbers, the answer is yes, and vice versa. It's the beauty of the game. But I think that's always a good exercise when thinking about the Hall of Fame. Do you think of them as one? When you watch them play, whether it was every day or it was only as a visitor, did you say that's a Hall of Fame baseball player? And a lot of times the stats will back you up, and sometimes they don't. With Todd Helton, I always thought no because of Coors Field. And I've realized that that's so unfair. Like, have we done that to other players in history? Wow. Yeah. Wrigley Field, wind blows out. Fenway Park, Rima. Not really. So it feels like it's disqualifying. Billy Wagner is on the Hall of Fame ballot. I don't love Billy Wagner as a man. There's some Met fans that like Billy Wagner. And I don't mean as a person. I just mean as a Met. I always think of Sotaguchi. I always think of Sotaguchi beating him in the 2006 NLCS. I think of the fact that in Game 7, and there are a lot of memories from Game 7 of the NLCS. That's our rewatch this year. 
And we'll be doing that in about two weeks here on the Rico Brilliant. But there are a lot of aspects of Game 7 that when you rewatch it, you're going to remember. And I blame Billy Wagner. Now, you may say to yourself, but Evan, Billy Wagner didn't even pitch in Game 7 of the NLCS. I think Willie Randolph was scared to use him in a non-save situation in the ninth inning at home, and he didn't. So who to use? A second inning out of Aaron Heilman. What happened? Home run of Yadi Molina. I kind of blame Billy Wagner. Is he a Hall of Famer? My mind never said he was. You look at the numbers, that's where it kind of differs. You look at the numbers and you see a dominant left-handed closer and considering some of the other closers now in the Hall of Fame, he probably fits, but I'm just telling you off the top, never thought of him as that. Andrew Jones, yes. Yes. Greatest defensive center fielder I've ever seen. Ken Griffey Jr. is right there. Ken Griffey Jr. is on another level offensively. Plus, Andrew had some pretty damn good offensive seasons. Gary Sheffield, yeah. Oh, I thought of Gary Sheffield as a Hall of Famer. Fearsome right-hand hitter. It's his last year on the ballot. And that'll be another guy who, if he gets in, you'll get to see Mets written there. Because he, of course, ended his career with the Mets, hitting his 500th home run. Carlos Beltran. I loved Carlos Beltran as a player. Loved him. I thought he was disrespected as a Met. I thought he was a very good Met. I think he'll go down in history as the greatest Met free agent signing of all time, greatest Met center fielder of all time. I don't think of him as a Hall of Famer. I think of him as a very, very good player. Manny Ramirez. By the way, Manny almost became a Met. Talk about alternate history. Manny Ramirez as a Met. Craig used to say, shake your fanny, go get Manny. And then we didn't. Yeah, the steroids complicated, but if you watched him, you knew it. Omar Vizquel. Omar Vizquel's gone way down the ballot because of some personal issues. Brilliant defensive shortstop. He's on that ilk of Ozzie Smith. And Ozzie was first ballot. And Omar Vizquel's sitting there on the seventh ballot getting 19% of the vote. Andy Pettit. Whatever. F him. Bobby Abreu. Another guy who played for the Mets. Do, 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 do we even remember Bobby Abreu as a Met? Like, when you, when you think of Bobby Abreu, do you remember his Met days, beat? I, I really don't. Yeah, Bobby's a good player, not a Hall of Famer. Jimmy Rollins. Jimmy Rollins, not a Hall of Famer. Nice player, great player, pissed us all off. Maybe Jimmy Rollins is our first entry in the Met Killer Series. Maybe. Except he's not. Jimmy Rollins, not a Hall of Famer. Mark Burley, not a Hall of Famer. Nice career, pitched the perfect game. Francisco Rodriguez. When I think of K-Rod as a Met, and I hated the nickname K-Rod, by the way, but I'm using it now. I think of the A-Rod at-bat and Luis Castillo drop pop-up. That is the Francisco Rodriguez moment as a New York Mets. Not his fault. It was his first blown save as a Met, and that didn't happen until June of that season. But I think of him pointing to the sky on the A-Rod pop-up, and then, of course, Luis Castillo dropping it. Torrey Hunter, not a Hall of Famer. Here are your first-time guys. Brandon Phillips, nice player, not a Hall of Famer. James Shields always pissed me off. They called him Big Game James. James Shields, famous in Met history. Why is James Shields famous in Met history, Pete? I don't remember. Gave up the home run to Bartolo Colon. Ah. On the mound. Speaking of which, Bartolo Colon is on the Hall of Fame ballot, not a Hall of Famer. Victor Martinez, former Met Jose Reyes. Jose Reyes, I think, had a shot. I I thought early in his career, he was on a trajectory where it could happen. But obviously, injuries fell off late, bounces around, actually ends up with the Mets again. Uh, but obviously, he's not. Jose Batista, another guy who was a Met. There's a lot of forgotten Mets. Adrian Gonzalez, 
another guy who is a Met, both not Hall of Famers. Matt Holiday. So when I think of Matt Holiday, I think of an old WFAN debate. The, there were three prominent free agents that particular year, and I forget the exact year. Matt Holiday, Jason Bay, and John Lackey. And there was a debate. Who, who should the Mets sign? Who should the Mets sign? Who should the Mets sign? And I was big on Matt Holiday, and basically everybody else was big on Jason Bay. And I'm not saying this to, like, spike the football by any stretch because I never thought Jason Bay would be this bad. But the reason why, like, Beningo loved Jason Bay was that he performed in Boston. And so the thought was, if he can perform in Boston, he could handle New York. And then Matt Holiday just had this, this feel where people didn't think he could play here. Plus, the Colorado aspect. And he went to Oakland briefly. And there was this stereotype of Matt Holiday that A, he wouldn't perform outside of Coors Field, and B, he couldn't handle New York. I wanted Matt Holiday. Everybody else was wrong. I turned out to be right because Matt was very good in St. Louis. He could have handled New York, as we saw in his later days with the Yankees, and we were stuck with Jason Bay. Chase Utley. Let me make this very clear about Chase Utley. If you were going to tell me Chase Utley's a Hall of Famer, I will raise you David Wright because David Wright was better than Chase Utley. Don't start with me about Chase Utley. And we all know his history. By the way, that's another candidate for the uh, Mets Killer Series. Is Chase Utley going to join us? F that guy. Joe Maurer. Joe Maurer, to me, is a no-doubt-about-it Hall of Famer. Guy won three batting titles as a catcher. That That's almost, like, automatic. And then Adrian Beltre, who's got all the gaudy stats. Adrian Beltre, Hall of Famer. And then, lastly, David Wright. David Wright, who we talked about earlier on this podcast in terms of that contract the Mets gave him and why I wouldn't regret it, because David Wright was able to end his career as a New York Met. David Wright, in 2012, he's now been in the major leagues for nine years. He's got a career batting average over 300. He's driven 100 runs five times. He's a really good defensive third baseman, had won a couple of gold gloves. He was on his way. On his way. And it feels like this franchise has had a lot of guys on their way to being New York Met. Hall of Famers. I don't mean in the Mets Hall of Famer. I mean Hall of Famers as an unquestioned New York Met, whether it was Doc Gooden or it was Daryl Strawberry or it was David Wright. Now, obviously, the circumstances around Doc and Daryl are far different, but David Wright could not stay healthy after the age of 30. And it's heartbreaking. It really is because I honestly think when you look at his career numbers that ended up at 296, 867 OPS, 240 career home runs, that if he would have had three more good years of health, he's a Hall of Famer. Because I stand by this. While he wasn't defensively what Scott Rowland was, I think when David Wright was in his prime and at his best, he was better than Scott Rowland. I do. The difference was, even though Rowland had injuries throughout his career, he was able to at least finish the story David Wright wasn't. Because after 30, David Wright just couldn't play. Just couldn't play. Just couldn't get on the field. So it's heartbreaking. I think, though, and I, I really believe this with Met fans. Met fans, listen to me on this. I think that they are going to give him a look. So I think he'll stay on the ballot after year one. I think he'll get the 5%. And I think David Wright's going to make a push in his 10 years on the ballot. I don't know if he's going to get in. I don't think he's ever going to get in. But I think that there will be consideration to David Wright. Because I think that a lot of the new age voters 
take more account into quality than quantity. And I think that when you look at, you know, an eight-year run of being one of the best third basemen in baseball, I think he's going to get considerable consideration. So my answer on David Wright was, I thought he was going to be a Hall of Famer. I just don't think he did enough. And that sucks, because that'd be awesome if David Wright was a career Met and in the Hall of Fame. I think the the honor of getting to the Hall of Fame is too pretentious these days, especially for the fact that they don't put in actual Hall of Famers. Like, Barry Bonds is a freaking Hall of Famer. I don't care about the juice anymore. Like, you're supposed to put the best players in there. So if your criteria is completely all over the place, then someone like David Wright should be able to get in there because you're right. The injuries kind of screwed him up, but yet we see it. I don't want to compare, you know, the whole thing, but Scott Rowland's in there. Scott Rowland's in there. David Wright needs to be in there, too. I think you're 100% right on that. Appreciate all the emails. The Rico B at gmail.com. Coming up this week, a lot to discuss, including some of the greatest Met Yankees of all time. We'll debut the Killer Series, where we'll talk to an all-time Met killer. And our rewatch is coming up in two weeks. We will rewatch Game 7 of the 2006 NLCS. And, of course, any breaking news, any rumors, we'll react to it on the Rico B, the Rico B at gmail.com to contact us. Again, subscribe, download, rate, do whatever you do with podcasts. We appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Rico Brody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. 